I'm Holly Wayment, and this is Pediatrics Now, cases, updates, and discussions for the busy pediatric practitioner. Click on the link in this podcast for free credit that may include MOC, CME, or ethics credit, depending on the topic or podcast. I'm thrilled today to have Dr. Ginny Abarbanel back here in the podcast studio with me. She's the Division Chief for Pediatric Cardiology at UT Health San Antonio and University Hospital. Dr. Barbanel, thank you so much for being here today. Pleased to be here. Thank you, Holly. So tell us what what would you like pediatric practitioners to know? You you get a lot of patients who have symptoms that you want to talk about. So I would say when I talk to pediatricians, they have a couple of things that they always ask me about. One is about chest pain in pediatrics as well as fainting or syncope. But before we even get there, I kind of want to just back up just a little bit about what types of patients we see in pediatric cardiology. And I want to back all the way up. We do fetal echocardiograms in pregnant moms to diagnose congenital heart disease prenatally so that those babies can be delivered in facilities where they have the care that they need and as well as um, a heads up that that's what we're expecting so that those babies can get the best care that they need. So that's one of the, the subset of patients that I see. Also as a pediatric cardiology, I have we have a robust outpatient clinic and in that outpatient clinic we see babies um, from infancy and neonate, the neonate all the way up to age 18 and sometimes up beyond, depending on what kind of congenital heart disease they have. So we will see, um, we'll see patients that have been diagnosed with congenital heart disease, and it is our job as pediatric cardiologists to actually diagnose what type of congenital heart disease they have and then follow them after they've had surgical repair for pretty much the rest of their childhood and uh, then establish care with adult congenital doctors. But in addition to that, I see a lot of normal kids for heart murmurs, which most of the time end up being innocent heart murmurs, which is uh, fun to do because then I get to see patients and tell them that they're just fine. And I also get to see patients with chest pain and syncope or fainting, and those are two of the more common um, diagnoses that we see in clinic. So tell us about, let's start with syncope. What is your advice there? So um, I think the thing when we think about syncope is there's a lot of fear involved because somebody has passed out. And the good thing is, is that most of the time, this is what I call simple fainting or simple syncope. Syncope, as you all know, is just a fancy medical term for fainting. And honestly, um, there are some numbers that would suggest up to 50% of young adults can actually recall the time that they pass out wow. or lost consciousness. Um, of those, it, there's the numbers are about one in a thousand actually seek medical help. So that means there are there are subsets of uh, pediatric patients and children who pass out. They come to and that's the end of it. <laughs> um, but we see those as well. And this is, like I said, a common reason for cardiology referral. Um, and oftentimes we'll see these patients if they've gone in for a sports physical and they report that they've had an episode of fainting. Syncope isn't necessarily a cardiac issue. And most of the time there isn't an underlying cardiac problem, which is actually good news. And there are several other things that cause people to faint. Um, that we don't always think about. For example, medications. Certain medications can make people dizzy. Uh, 
There are neurological issues that can make people dizzy and have loss of consciousness. There's psychiatric issues that can cause people to have loss of consciousness and fainting. And then there's some metabolic issues. For example, if your sugar is low, we know that diabetics who have low sugar and they get a really low sugar, they start acting funny and they can actually have loss of consciousness. So I think a lot of people start thinking about fainting and the first thing they think about is heart. Um, and, I, and I think that's a good thing because that's the most scary thing if there is a heart issue that can cause you to pass out. And so I see these type of patients all the time in my clinic. And what I always think about is my part of the job is to weed through what is worrisome and what isn't worrisome. And when I talk to pediatricians, the thing that they're always asking me is, what are things that would make, you wor would make me worried if I saw a teenager? Most of them are teenagers who pass out. Um, and uh, the red flags that I have are pretty short, but I think they're good to cover. So what those are is if somebody passes out during exercise, that is always abnormal. Please send them our way. Um, that is not a normal thing. If they describe having uh, chest pain palpitations during an event and then they pass out, that's also a red flag to me. Um, if that uh, episode of fainting is triggered by fright, uh, being completely angry, or some kind of noise in the background, and they pass out, that is also concerning. In particular, that can be associated with something called long QT syndrome. Yeah, um, tell us about long QT, because I remember doing a story about that when I was a journalist in Salt mm -hmm. Lake City. So. so long QT is a genetic syndrome that can run in families, and if the way that we identify it is by an EKG or ECG. And by the way, EKG and ECG are the same thing. Uh, and we identify it that way, but we also identify it by family history as well as um, symptoms. And um, long QT syndrome can be associated with sudden cardiac death, and that's why we get really worried about it. And by knowing ahead of time, it can be prevented? Correct. So if we know that somebody has long QT syndrome, we can treat it with medications as well as some procedures, sometimes needing pacemakers and um, implantable defibrillators, so we can actually prevent those episodes of sudden cardiac death. Why are there two terms, ECG and EKG? Do we it's always funny, isn't it? Yeah. So, the e so ECGs were developed in uh, Germany, and the spelling for electrocardiogram in Germany is with a K instead of a C, mm. and the American spelling is with a C. So we use the terms intermittently EKG and ECG, but they mean the same thing. Oh. So, so if a, say a 14-year-old is in the exam room, the, the pediatrician is about to go in, you know, what, what should the pediatrician be thinking about? What's step one, two, and three this this adolescent fainted, and it wasn't one of those warning signs? So I think it's always interesting. It goes back to medical school when everybody says the history tells you most of the story, and I think in, in syncope and fainting, the history actually tells you more than your physical exam is going to tell you. Okay. And particularly, uh, part of the other parts of the history, I gave you some red flags, but another red flag is that most people, before they pass out, they feel dizzy, or they'll have some kind of prodrome, like some kind of tingling in their fingers. They'll feel dizzy. They might feel nauseated. People describe seeing stars. People describe, like, tunnel vision. So those, if there's an associated prodrome before they pass out, that always makes me feel reassured. 
If there's no prodrome given, that makes me more concerned. Years ago, I had a teenager tell me that she woke up in her car in the field off the side of the road, and she didn't know how she got there. Mm. So now that would be a scary story Mm -hmm. compared to a teenager who said, I stood up too fast, I got kind of dizzy, my vision blurred, I started to see tunnel vision, and then I woke up, you know, on the floor. Mom says, yeah, I saw her fall, um, and she was out for 30 seconds Mm -hmm. or something. And that, to me, is way less concerning than... I woke him uh, woke up in my car in the field and I don't know how I got there. Mm, mm-hmm. um, but other things, just even before you walk in, as you walk into the room, thinking about the past medical history, does is there a past medical history of heart problems like congenital heart disease? Are they being seen by a cardiologist? Have they been seen by a cardiologist? Thinking about co- acquired heart disease, so that being different than congenital heart disease, acquired is meaning things like Kawasaki disease. Do they have an underlying cardiomyopathy? And even rare in the United States is their underlying rheumatic heart disease, which would be incredibly rare here in the United States. But thinking about those things before you even walk in the room. And then a family history, making sure you're taking a good family history. Is there an early cardiac death or sudden death in the family? That should be a red flag. Um, Are there known familial um, arrhythmias, for example? That should be a red flag as well. And is there a known cardiomyopathy? Is there a known history of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is where the heart muscle is too thick, or dilated cardiomyopathy, where the heart actually gets dilated? So go before you even touch the patient, these are some of the things that you want to make sure that you, you look at, as well as medications, for example, right? Like um, those kind of things are all those things even before you touch a patient. Um, once you touch a patient, most of the time is think in patients that come to see me who have passed out, their physical exam is completely normal. But things that you'll find on physical exam, uh, a pathological murmur or murmur that sounds, sounds harsh and doesn't sound normal. Um, is there a gallop rhythm? Is their liver big? Um, do they have tachycardia? The heart rate's too high. Do they have bradycardia? The heart rate's too low. Um, is there irregular heart rhythm? Those kind of things that you'll see on physical exam. My teenage daughter, where she would, every time she's told me she's starting to feel dizzy, and then I, I suggest she drinks some water, and then she feels better. So it could be as simple as dehydration. Yes, it could. <laughs> and um, thanks, Holly, because honestly, most of the time, most of the patients I see, we call this uh, simple fainting or vasovagal syncope, which is just a lot of fancy words to say the brain and heart is connected together and you, ha- you pass out, or neurocardiogenic syncope, which is the same way of saying vasovagal syncope. And honestly, the first, um, the first thing of uh, treatment is how much water do you drink? Do you drink any fluids? It's funny because I get all kinds of stories from they drink gallons of water to she just drinks pickle juice. I'm like, Ew. What? Yeah. <laughs> um, but that is the first line of treatment is actually increasing the amount of water you drink as well as increasing the amount of salt. Because if you increase the amount of salt that you're taking in, you hang on to more water. Okay, that's that's great advice. This is embarrassing, but when I was in college, I fainted. And I remember being in the the medical you know nurse center there and where they're asking me like question and they're like well yeah I haven't eaten in a few days because I've been stressed <laughs> out for exam you know and it ended up being just that but so sometimes that's probably the issue too like teenage moment 
Yes, I think it's, there's a lot of teenage moments because uh, teenagers don't want to pack a water bottle around to school. They don't want mom to tell them they need to drink more water. Um, they don't always, want to constantly go to the bathroom. They don't want to constantly go to the bathroom. And then they wonder why they don't feel well. Um, and I have two teenagers, and I, they do the exact same thing. So doctors' kids do the exact same thing. But I think that the things that I was just talking about, those things on – uh, past medical history, the actual story of the fainting events, the family history, very few red flags you're going to see on physical exam, but those things would be the ones to send on over to us. And honestly, we see everyone. So sometimes uh, if you as the pediatric practitioner says, I think this is simple fainting, why don't you increase your water and take more salt? Families don't always believe you, but if when they come to see us, we'll do oftentimes an EKG and sometimes an echo. I don't always do an echocardiogram in every fainting patient. Um, but sometimes I, because they've heard it from you, the general practitioner, and when I say it again, Oftentimes, then it seems to be more accepted. So we are always there to help you. And you see patients out of the Med Center Clinic at Wurzbach and Fredericksburg mm -hmm. Gateway. Correct. And then also patients, our clinic in Stone Oak. Mm -hmm. And our clinic in Stone Oak is at North Central Baptist in the atrium building. And then at University Hospital. Yes, we see patients there as well. And a lot of exciting things happening with University Hospital now and the ER yeah, we just moved into the new hospital, Holly, on Tuesday. That's was, so exciting. How did so that two go? Two days ago. It's been, uh, we're happy to be there, but it's like moving it. Anytime you move, there's always hiccups and there's always things along the way. We just always have to tell ourselves to be patient. These things get worked out. And the, this is the new Women's and Children's Hospital at, at University Health. Dr. Ian Mitchell was talking about how the surgeons were going to help move the babies two by two. and <laughs> yeah, well, It was pretty impressive how they started moving those babies early in the morning. They started with the NICU babies and actually... Our like 2 a.m. or something, yeah, right? Yeah, 2 a.m. And our, our cardiac babies that were admitted to our pediatric cardiac unit, we were the last ones to move, and they predicted we'd move at 4 o'clock, and we moved at 4 o'clock. Wow. It was pretty impressive that it, everything worked like clockwork, so... I think the bigger issues now is like when you move into a new house, where are you going to put stuff? Where's things going to be? Where And those kind of things, we know we've moved into any new house. We know that takes a little bit of time to figure out. I've heard it's beautiful. It is beautiful. It is very beautiful. Um, the artwork is beautiful, and it's just a brand new building, so we're very blessed to be in that new building. And it's, it's so inspiring to me to be here with you today, and I'm I know you do so much to help babies and children, and there's there's so much bad news in the world today, and we see these images of the violence happening to children and the wars. And, but it's great to have good news where you're, you're making such a difference. It is fun to be able to take care of these patients. And um, I saw a patient of mine last week, and she's in, I think, fourth grade. So I walked right in, and I had to tell her, because the last time I saw her, six months ago, she brought her ukulele and sang me a song. Aww. So I said, hey, are you going to sing me a song today? She's like, oh, no. She was so happy to see me that her mom had to tell her that she had to let Dr. Barbadale talk. And it's so fun to see those those patients that are just, they're just so happy to see you and happy to um, be on the other side of having the heart fixed and, like, living life and one of the things that we have coming up is we have, we're planning a kids' heart camp, actually, mm -hmm. in conjunction with Morgan Wonderland's camp. So I don't know if you know, but there's a 
Morgan Wonderland um, has their amusement park area, but they also have a kids camp that's out near Bilverde. And so we're going to do an overnight camp um, for kids with heart problems in April. So we're working on that. So it's pretty cool. How wonderful. Anything else you want to say about chest pain? What is most commonly missed? You have so much coming at you, and then this patient has chest pain. You don't want to miss anything, of course. Well, before we get to chest pain, I just have a funny a funny little, like, uh, fact. Okay. Just for fun. About fainting goats. Has oh. anybody heard about the fainting goats? No. So there are these goats that actually, like, look like they pass out, but... According to the Falmer's Almanac, they don't really lose consciousness, but they'll, like, fall over. Uh, they'll stiffen up and they'll fall, o- fall over when they're startled, which is kind of bizarre stuff. It's oh. just random facts. And um, apparently it's caused by a hereditary genetic condition called myotonia congenita. Hmm. So there's your, there's your strange animal fact for the day, that there are fainting goats, but they don't actually faint. Wow, that is really interesting to know. I know. Some of these facts sometimes, they're just interesting. It is. Did okay, anything else about syncope before we... No. Okay. So, you know, moving on to chest pain, I think what I want people to know is that chest pain in kids is usually not related to the heart. So less than 1% of the time is chest pain caused by a heart problem in kids. But we see a lot of kids with chest pain because it's really frightening, and the number one thing that everybody thinks of if they have chest pain is that they're going to die, just like grandma and grandpa die from a heart attack. And the reassuring thing is is that less than 1% of the time is there a heart issue at all. Um, and uh, so we see a lot of kids with chest pain just because of that concern. Um, most of the time, the chest pain is musculoskeletal, growing pains is how I describe it to families. There are some fancy terms that we try to throw out there, costochondritis, which is technically the inflammation of the cartilage um, as the ribs attach to the breastbone. Um, something called slipping rib syndrome, which is yeah, very interesting. Um, but most of the time, we don't ever come up with a diagnosis, and this is what I tell families. Other things that cause chest pain, asthma, heartburn, so gastroesophageal reflux, um, pneumonia, that's a rare one. But most of the time, those are the things. And interestingly, um, psychological causes cause you have chest pain, and what I find is that when families come in and they've kept a, a journal of how often the kid has chest pain, it's... It's interesting that as they keep that journal, they have chest pain more and more and more and more and more. And so sometimes after I see them and tell them that their heart is fine, they're going to be fine, they're not going to fall over dead, um, chest pain goes away. Mm. Isn't that interesting? So the the stress itself could be causing it? So I think it's the stress itself, but I think it's also just sort of the the fear involved and the more you – um, track something and the more fear that you have, it seems like the more those symptoms occur. It kind of when we focus on the negative in life. Correct. Sort of similar to that one. Yeah. Okay. So, but I do have an algorithm I kind of wanted just to share with your Sounds listeners. Great. So I was sort of talking about things that are red flags for chest pain. Um, again, those things that we talked about before with syncope is the, is there additional medical history? Is there congenital heart disease? Do they have a history of Kawasaki disease? Um, do they have a history of Turner syndrome? So Turner syndrome is associated with, um, aortic dissection. 
which is rare, but it happens. And then the family history. Are there family history of people falling over dead? Specifically, is there a family history of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or dilated cardiomyopathy or connective tissue disorders like Marfan's or Ellos Danlos? Or is there family history of aortic rupture, dissection, or aneurysm? So these are these things that you get to before you even uh, take a listen to the patient and do your physical exam. Things on physical exam are those abnormal things that say they look like they have Marfan syndrome, they have a murmur, they have a click. Um, do they look like they have Kawasaki's? <laughs> um, which would be even more common, I think, in this kind of scenario when they're talking about chest pain. But these are the things to think about even before you touch the patient that uh, I would say you should send over to us on our red flags if there's chest pain. Um, other things are there associated symptoms like palpitations, passing out, syncope, unexplained um, shortness of breath. Is the chest pain worse when they're laying down? That's oftentimes seen with pericarditis, so positional chest pain. Um, and then if they have some extreme fatigue, things like that are kind of the red flags for us. And when are the red, red flags, like when do you call or send the child to the ER? Is there anything you want to mention there? I think that if a child is, most of the time if they're coming to see, see you in the clinic, the chest pain has been going on for a while. They do end up in the ER when it's like abrupt and just started. That's oftentimes families will go to the ER rather than going to the pediatrician. Uh, I, would say, I would say those things that are super worrisome is if uh, the heart rate was over 200, that might be SVT. That might, you know, that should be going to the ER. If the chest pain is, is so bad that the child is in tears, sometimes sending them to the ER, but that could also still be musculoskeletal chest pain. But those things like that is probably the ones that I would send over to the ER. And if a, if a child is um, playing basketball or exerting themselves, like it could be some growing pains, like where they feel it a pain. It could, and, and that, that was the next thing I was going to add to my red flags, is if the chest pain occurs with exercise, we definitely send all of those over. And when I see patients in clinic, that if chest pain occurs with exercise and activity, I will do an echocardiogram just to make sure there isn't anything underlying, for example, coronary artery abnormalities or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Um, and then I'll do my ECG looking for long QT syndrome or Brigada syndrome or some of these other really rare zebras as well. What if the child has high blood pressure in the exam that, that could be white coat hypertension or and certainly if they have active chest pain if their chest is hurting and like they're scared certainly their blood pressure could be elevated so I don't know if I make too much out of the fact that their blood pressure is elevated at the time that they're having chest pain or they're being seen by the physician just because of all those things that you've said okay anything else regarding chest pain or do you want to mention a case that you see I, I would say that um, a lot of people don't know about slipping rib syndrome, which mm. is an interesting phenomena. Uh, this kind of ties into my husband, the cardiothoracic surgeon. So slipping rib syndrome is we actually have floating ribs. So the uh, eighth, ninth, and tenth ribs are floating ribs, which means that they don't connect. They connect in a cartilage that goes into uh, can connect into cartilage or they're floating so they don't really connect to the breastbone. And interestingly, there are a subset of patients where those ribs like rub on each other when you 
you move, like mm. if you turn to the side. Uh-huh. And when they rub against each other, they can actually sharpen the tip of the rib so it looks like a knife. Like huh. it's pointed. Um, and this was something I was never learned about. And my husband, who is the pediatric congenital heart surgeon, educated me about it because he had a patient who came to see him who that's what the family had diagnosed she had. And um, nobody would believe ha- believe them that that's what it was. And so he did some research on it, and he looked at it, and he actually ended up taking that patient to surgery and took out those floating ribs, and they were pointed. And, you could, and they were so pointed that you could understand why this would cause such pain along those the side. Yes. Um, and that patient uh, actually has gone on to play um, college fo- college baseball, and all of that too wow. as well. And so it's one of these things that we, I never learned about, I never thought about, but it's something I think that our, your listeners could think about and maybe even go look it up. But the way it's diagnosed is interesting. You do this sort of hooking maneuver. So what you do is you take your fingers and you curl underneath those floating ribs on the side and you kind of pull up like a hook. Mm-hmm. And if the if there's sl- slipping rib syndrome, the patient will hundred that will hundred percent reproduce the pain they have, and they will also like almost smack you because it hurts so bad. Wow! But something to think about: slipping rib syndrome that I never learned about, and I don't think we teach very many people about this as a cause for it's more um, side side pain rather than chest pain. But something to think about because we don't learn about it. That is so interesting, and and how amazing to, that that child had the surgery, went on to play pro baseball. Uh-huh. Wow. Um, and the things, other things I just let people know is that when I see patients with chest pain, what I try to do is I reassure them. I said, y- yes, I, you came to a cardiologist. My job is to make sure that you don't have a heart problem. And so I will, that's what I fit, find my job to be. And after I'm done and we do all the things, and not always do I do an echo, sometimes I do an echocardiogram, sometimes I don't. Uh, like basically what, I'm tell, what I like to tell them is that you are having chest pain, but it's not related to your heart. And the next question, well, how do we figure out what, what it's caused by? And then I said, well, we oftentimes don't figure out what it's caused by. But knowing that you don't have a heart problem and that you're not gonna die, oftentimes will help alleviate the fear associated with the chest pain. And sometimes just alleviating the fear in the families because of the chest pain in itself makes the chest pain get better or even go away. That's great to know. I, and I want to mention, so your husband, Dr. Aaron Abarbanel, is a pediatric CT surgeon at University Hospital and the University of Texas Health Science Center as well. And the two of you work as an incredible team we do work as an incredible team and people say do you talk about work at home and of course we talk about work at (laughs) home we try not to but of course we do and i would say for me as a cardiologist i actually i think it's made me a better cardiologist because i can be i've learned about how our surgeons think because cardiologists think differently than surgeons do and having that insight I've learned how to think a little bit different when I, I'm talking about cases and thinking about patients that we need to send to surgery. And so it's been a really, it's a really great partnership for not just the two of us, but I think it's a great partnership professionally for me because I've been able to learn from him and I think vice versa. 
And we'll have him hopefully back on the show soon as well. Yeah. The two of you together again. There you go. And there is an episode, if you go back in the podcast feed, where you all were featured last February for Heart Month. Um, and you did a great job on that. So you and your husband, you have two teenage kids. And here in pediatrics now, we like to promote having a life outside of medicine. And I know you you like to go, your family goes, you go to state parks, national parks. We, yes, we have um, been making our rounds trying to get to different national parks and state parks and spending more time outside hiking, backpacking. We, over Thanksgiving break, we were at Zion National Park and we went backpacking in the backcountry, which was pretty phenomenal. How amazing. Was there snow? So when we went to Bryce, there was snow. In Zion, there was a little bit of snow where we were at. It wasn't super cold. In Bryce, it was actively snowing. Mm -hmm. So just so you know, we didn't camp in the snow. We (laughs) actually stayed in a hotel. Um, But beautiful. (laughs) Uh, It was beautiful just because the snow was just so beautiful. Um, that day in Bryce Canyon National Park. But that's what we've been doing lately and just trying, if we both find that it's a great escape sometimes, sometimes you just have to escape life and medicine and just be out in nature because it kind of centers, it centers us. It helps us all to recharge. Yes. And not everybody recharges that way. I know. There are lots <laughs> of people recharge in nice vacations and I, I like those too, but recently the most things that we've been doing is more hiking, camping, and backpacking. And Utah has some incredible places yes. to hike. It's amazing. Yes, it is amazing. Do you have a quote that you want to share with us today? Um, I know we've talked about it before. We both we both really like quotes. I love quotes here on Pediatrics Now. The, the one about worry that you said to me the other day that helped me. So this quote is from Corey Ten Boom. Uh, so those that don't know who Corrie Ten Boom was, she was in the uh, prison, the the prisoner camps, the uh, in I think she was at Auschwitz, mm-hmm. and um, her family actually hid the Jew- hid Jewish people during World War II, and then they got caught. Mm-hmm. Corrie Ten Boom did survive uh, the the um, concentration camps, and so this is her quote: "It says, worrying is carrying tomorrow's load with today's strength." carrying two days at once. It is moving into tomorrow ahead of time. Worrying does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow, but it empties today of its strength. That's really beautiful. What does that mean to you, or do you want to talk about that? What that means to me is that there's enough to worry about for today. If you start worrying about tomorrow, you you start adding all of that stress of tomorrow, and tomorrow isn't even here yet. So Focus on what we have to do today, and then when we get to tomorrow, we worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow. I think that's really empowering, too. Mm -hmm. My grandmother used to uh, worry a lot, and she would joke, but it must be working because everything I worry about doesn't end up happening. (laughs) Yeah, I think that, especially I think COVID has really made... um, May parent may parenting difficult to think, and also it's yeah. it's how it's made some of our kids much more worrying about their future, and this is a old quote. Cory Ten Boom, I think, has passed away because she was one of the survivors of the concentration camp from World War II. But if you think about it, sometimes we we can't keep we can't keep worrying about what's going to happen tomorrow because we don't have any control over what happens tomorrow. We just have control over what happens today. And 
um, during COVID, one of the things that I got to thinking about was, well, I don't have any control over this. Mm-hmm. And I don't have any control over what's going to happen tomorrow. So just think about what I can do today. And the small stuff, don't sweat the small stuff. Yeah. So anything else you want to mention, Jenny, to our practitioner listeners? I think all of the thing that I just end on is that we in cardiology, we're always here. We're always open to questions. Um, I'm always willing to take a phone call if you want to bounce a patient off me. And uh, we can talk through things and try to come up with the best plan. And uh, we're always there to help you. And whatever you need from us, just let us know. Dr. Jenny Abarbanel, Division Chief for Pediatric Cardiology at the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio and University Hospital. Thank you so much for being here today on Pediatrics Now. Thank you, Holly. I appreciate it. Click on the link in this podcast for free credit. Our website is pediatricsnowpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening. Coming up next week on Pediatrics Now, I'll interview our expert on pediatric wellness and endocrinology. We're going to talk about weight loss drugs and kids. That's next week on Pediatrics Now. I'm Holly Wayment.